let's uh, stand together as we read the gospel together. I've chosen the Amplified Version this morning because it it tries to uh, include all the different nuances of the Greek language here to give us a a full understanding of what the words of Jesus uh, mean for us this morning. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that continues to bear fruit, he repeatedly prunes so that it will bear more fruit even richer and finer fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have given you, the teachings which I have discussed with you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself without remaining in the vine, neither can you bear fruit, producing the evidence of your faith. Unless you remain in me, I am the vine, you are the branches." The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For otherwise, apart from me, that is cut off from vital union with me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a broken off branch and withers and dies. And they gather such branches and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me, And my words remain in you. That is, if we are vitally united and my message lives in your heart, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified and honored by this when you bear much fruit and prove yourselves to be my true disciples. I have loved you just as the father has loved me. Remain in my love and do not doubt my love for you. If you keep my commandments and obey my teaching, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy and delight may be in you and that your joy may be made full and complete and overflowing. You may be seated. That's the word of the Lord this morning to us. The setting for our passage today follows on the hills of of Jesus' last Passover meal with his disciples. This will be the last time that he has them all together to teach them what life in the kingdom looks like. During the Passover meal, Jesus strips away their, their last hopes of a conquering Messiah who will overthrow the Romans with power and glory. In fact, I can take you to the very verse where the mood changed, John 13, 3 to 5. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Just kind of a side note here. Notice Jesus knows who he is, his identity. He is secure in his identity. And just like Jesus, when a person is secure in their identity as a child of God, and that's your primary identity, serving others is a lot more easy. You have nothing to prove, no false identity to protect. So after Jesus washes their feet, I can hear the disciples say to themselves, can't you? Uh Uh-oh, 
uh-oh, what's, this do? What, what's our Messiah doing? Messiahs don't wash feet. Uh-oh, this is the way, this is not the way that conquering Messiahs act. And, the, and then Jesus says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. This action and statement rule out any public triumph. And so Jesus presses on. The final blow to the disciples' expectations kind of sounds like a concession speech. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of the world is coming. That can mean only one thing. Jesus is not the kind of ruler we anticipated. He will not be a conquering king by a military in any way. John 13 says, my children, Jesus says, I will be with you only a little while longer. Where I'm going, you, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Can you see the disciples right now? I think they're feeling pretty small and weak. They're staring at him in disbelief. Maybe a little mistrust and some fear, maybe a lot of fear. They begin to sink in their anxiety and dread. They're slumping before him like abandoned children, defenseless in a hostile world. The evening in the upper room ends. The questions end. And then Jesus says, John 14, 31, arise, let us go from here. Eleven dejected men follow Jesus down the stairs out into the cool night air. The disciples followed Jesus through the winding streets of Jerusalem, avoiding the Temple Mount and and its noisy, celebrating crowds. Jesus turns right and leads them out of the city, and then they turn sharply left to follow the Kidron Valley up toward their destination. I've been privileged to take that path as I was able to visit Jerusalem. Along the terraces that, that follow the curve of the valley, they pass through ancient vineyards and they walk between the rows of these neatly tended grapes, plants that have literally been bearing fruit for generations. And here Jesus stops, hemmed in by, by rows of vines and disciples gather around. I can see their, their torches and lamps flicker in their eyes. And Jesus reaches for a, a bunch of grapes, a grape branch. And its woolly stem lies across his hand. And now he begins, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. My father is the vine dresser. And by using this Greek phrase, ego a me, which translates I am, Jesus is saying that I, Jesus, God, am the true vine. Now, when Jesus started speaking about vineyards, the people of Judea knew what he was talking about, it was an industry that had been carefully cultivated uh, through the country for centuries. It was crucial because it was a cash crop and it was vital to the economy of the land. So when Jesus spoke about vineyards, certain the people could identify with that metaphor he was using. But there's something else that these listeners could most certainly know. A vineyard was a symbol of the nation of Israel. It was their national identity over and over again in the Old Testament. Israel is pictured as the vine or the vineyard of God. 
Josephus, the Roman historian, informs us that over the temple in Jerusalem was carved an exquisite gold leaf grapevine. And it stood as a national symbol of unity for Israel. Israel itself was in the eyes of its people, the true vine, whose roots ran all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And obviously Jesus is saying he is the true vine, not Israel or its religious structure, but that spiritual life and vitality come through Jesus, not the religious establishment of Israel, just like today. Our spiritual life, our energy and vitality come through Christ, amen? And in Jesus' analogy, he compared himself to a vine while the fruit-bearing branches here are his disciples. And God, the farmer, is depicted as the one who cultivates the vineyard. He waters and tends the soil so that the vine is properly nourished. He takes pride in his crop. But this means that he also prunes the vines and removes the dead wood. The grapes hang onto the branches. And what Jesus is saying here is clear. The disciples should receive their strength from Jesus. He is the true vine. If they break away from him, they'll be like unproductive branches and die and bear no fruit. Then they'll have to be pruned out. Notice, notice though, notice the branch, the branch does not die because it's cut off. It's cut off by the vine dresser. It is cut off because it is already dead and bears no fruit. I was reminded of that this morning as I took my walk with my dog. We had high winds last night. I'm sure you experienced those. And most of the branches that were laying in the road and had blown across and to, to yards, I began to notice that, well, every branch I saw was already dead. Uh, it had not received nourishment for a long time from the tree. And in the high wind, it had snapped off. And there it lay. That's what we're saying here. The vine dresser doesn't cut, off, cut us off, but we're cut off because we've already died and can bear no fruit. You see, the destination, the bottom line, the end result, the purpose of what Jesus is explaining is do our lives bring glory to God? John 15, 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, as I examined this passage, I was reminded of the question. Question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, it asks the question, and they teach through asking questions, and you answer, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How am I to bring glory to God? Well, Jesus tells us by bearing fruit. How am I to bear fruit? By abiding in, remaining in, staying connected to, staying vitally united with Jesus. Now, as I thought about this, there are at least two kinds of fruit for the Christian. There's inner fruit and there's outer fruit. Let's look at the outer fruit. The words fruit and good works in the Bible are used nearly interchangeably most of the time. Take, for instance, Titus 3.14. Let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. In practical terms, fruit represents the good works of a loving, compassionate life, a thought, an attitude, an action towards others that God values because it glorifies him. 
We are able to bear that kind of fruit because we remain, we abide, we stay vitally connected to Jesus. We abide in Jesus by remaining in his love. We remain in his love by obeying his commands. And over and over again, his command is that we love one another. John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this men, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he'll be obeying my teaching. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Move on to the 15th chapter, verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit Fruit that will last. And the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. So the fruit of abiding in Christ is loving others. The fruit from your life is how God is honored on earth. That's why Jesus declares, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So what does this love look like? How do we know if we're obeying Christ's command to love others. Well, Paul helps us out at that. You've probably heard this passage in many, many weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient. This is what the fruit looks like. Love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus reminds us that love doesn't harbor unforgiveness or grudges. Love forgives those who trespass against us. We prayed that this morning. James reminds us that love does not show favoritism. The only way to bear that kind of fruit is to allow the vine dresser, the gardener, to prune us. I'm sure you've discovered that pruning, discipline from our father is is never fun, but it's necessary because in the end it pays great dividends and bears much fruit. Our outer fruit of loving, compassionate acts and attitudes towards others brings glory to God. We bear outward fruit when we allow God to work through us glory. Now that would certainly include sharing our faith But the apostles saw every arena of life as an opportunity to bear fruit. Paul wrote, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Whether we're chopping wood for a widow, taking care of an ill neighbor, or spending a lifetime as missionary in the jungle, outward fruit appears when our motive is to bring glory to God. Now, what about the inner fruit? We bear inner fruit when we allow God to nurture in us a new Christ-like quality. Paul informs us in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He also uh, reminds us in that chapter what 
this fruit of love does not look like. <laughs> there are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to explain to us what the fruit of the Spirit looks like that I just read. How important and valuable is fruit bearing? Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit, fruit that will last in John 15, 16. Fruit is our only permanent deposit in heaven. Real fruit always lasts, and it's the reason God saved us. Paul told Christians they were created in Christ Jesus for good works in Ephesians 2.10. You'd think that something so crucial to God's plan would happen automatically in your life and mine. Nothing could be further from the truth. For the vineyard to really produce, the branches have to respond to the attention of the vine dresser. So, kind of wrapping it up, what, what can we make of this analogy in terms of our daily life? What does it mean to be God's vineyard? First, it raises a question we must all answer. Are we bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? How can you recognize a pear tree? Because it has pears hanging on its branch, right? How do we identify an apple tree by the fruit that it bears? How can you recognize a Christian by the fruit that they bear? It's just as simple as that. The fruits of the vine are not church attendance or biblical knowledge or your individual stewardship, even though all of those things are important. God uses all of those things to prune us and to provide soil, good soil for us in which to grow the fruit, true fruit of the vine and become that true fruit. So they're important. But the true fruit of the vine, the result is a loving, compassionate life. And it comes down to this. How do we treat other people? That's as simple and as direct, I think, as we can put it this morning. Pastor Larry Daniels uh, he tells a story of a particular lady who was in his little country church in Tennessee when he first arrived as pastor. And it was interesting to me, he said, that even before I met, met her, everyone was telling me about this lady. They were saying, she's such a religious person. And it is true that every time she came to church, she brought her Bible with her. And indeed, everywhere she would go over the town, she always had her Bible with her. At the evening worship, as lay people were called upon to lead in prayer, she would always be the first to stand and to pray such wonderful, short, exquisite prayers. And it seemed like the subject of her religion was always on her mind. She didn't know how to carry on a simple conversation without bringing that up. And Pastor Daniel says, I didn't have any problem with any of these things. The problem I had was that when it came down to people who were down, in society, the poor, the unemployed, the divorced, the alcoholics, the drug addicts, and others, she was relentless in her criticism and judgment. She was without mercy and compassion. There was judgment and nothing else. I know a person like that. I don't like being around him. After a while, despite all these outward appearances of religion and despite everyone calling her a religious person, he says, I had to begin asking myself the question, does this individual really bear the fruit to the Christian life as described by Scripture? 
The issue is not how much knowledge I have or even necessarily how sincere we are. The issue is how do we treat people? If we're in Christ, people will be able to see the fruits of our lives in terms of our compassion and love and attitude towards others. Secondly, there is such a thing as an unproductive life. Branches that do not remain in the vine produce no fruit. No branch, said Jesus, can bear fruit by itself. We must be ever mindful of the source of our fruitfulness. Many, many years ago, uh, and I hate to stop and count them up, but because I'm getting old now. Many years ago at the Tournament of Roses parade, the Standard Oil Company, now known as Chevron, had a beautiful float. In the middle of the parade, the oil company's float came to a grinding halt and the rest of the parade with it. What had happened? This float from Chevron Standard Oil Company had run out of gas. How embarrassing is that? The directors of the Chevron float had done everything well, but they neglected to avail themselves of their company's vast resource of oil. And the parade waited while someone ran to get a gallon of gas. Too often, I think this happens among Christians, churches break down right in the middle of the parade. And why? No, it, it's, it's impossible for the entire kingdom of God to be held up while some church leaders goes to fetch a gallon of the gospel. I sometimes wonder what God must think when we neglect the source of our strength and power. When we fail to abide in Christ, we render ourselves ineffective. My father, Jesus, reminds us as the gardener, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Now, we don't like to wrestle with that concept, but there it is for us to wrestle with and chew on because it implies that God cuts some people out because they're already spiritually dead. And in this immediate context that Jesus is in, as he says these words to the original audience, Jesus is here specifically referring to the Jewish leaders. But we miss the point if we don't understand that this law of nature also applies to all Christians. We like to think there's various degrees of allegiance, but the truth is that in God's vineyard, there are only two kinds of branches, those that are bearing fruit and those that are not. Wherever you are in that process, there's varying degrees of maturity. There's varying degrees of productivity, but there's two kinds. You're either bearing fruit and increasing in that or you're not. The former are cultivated, the latter are pruned. God uses the lives of those persons who bear fruit for his kingdom. Lastly, we must cultivate, I emphasize cultivate, we must cultivate a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. And that happens in all the spiritual disciplines that God gives to us. Worship together. Private worship when we meet with him. The word of God as we read and meditate on it. The word of God as we discuss it in small groups. Service. The most blessed I've ever been was in Mexico during a service. God's presence overwhelmed me as I served him. So God gives us all those means, fellowship, in which to cultivate, that he can cultivate that soil, and that he can prune us, that we can maintain that vital relationship with Jesus. We need each other. We need him. We need the spirit. We need each other. We need the word, the living word, which is Jesus, the Logos, the written word, which is inspired by God. Jesus said, you must abide in me and my words in you. In that word abide, he's talking here about relationship. As the fruit receives its nourishment from the vine, so too do we in turn receive daily nourishment and growth through Christ. 
How tragic it is that so many today see their strength as being financial security or peer respect or their own creative ingenuity or a host of other things. These things may feed us for a day or even for a season, but there comes a time when they will not bring the deep nourishment that we seek and that we need. For for that, we need God. We need Jesus, the vine. Marian Anderson, perhaps uh, some feel the greatest contralto that ever lived. Indeed, she's one of the greatest contraltos that ever lived. Had a wonderful relationship with her mother. It was said of, of her life, her music could bring one to tears. Her life could bring one to their, knee, to their knees. Her music was good, but her life was better. She was once being interviewed and was asked about the most wonderful moment in her impressive career. She could have mentioned the time when the, the great uh, Arturo Toscanini told her that hers was the greatest voice of the century. She could have mentioned the time when she sang before the Roosevelts and the king and queen of England. She could have said it was winning a coveted award for the person who had done the most for their hometown of Philadelphia. There's also the time when she sang before a crowd of 75,000 on Easter Sunday at Lincoln's statue. She was asked, which of these moments would she choose? And she said, none of them. My greatest moment, she said, is when I went home to my mother and said, Mom, you will never have to take in washing again. If this kind of relationship can exist between mother and daughter, then how much more can be our relationship with Jesus Christ? He wants the best for us. He wants us to experience our best selves, that for which we're created in our purpose, to glorify him and to bear fruit that brings glory to our Father. How does this happen? Well, I got good news. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 1 to 5, how we are grafted into Jesus the vine and how we stay united with Jesus and how we produce the fruit of love. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by grace into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God and hope does not put us to shame or hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Now, the reason that's good news is that you don't have to leave here this morning thinking, I just need to try harder. This, this is not just a just try harder salvation. This is let God pour his love into your heart by the fullness of the Holy Spirit as a gift of faith salvation. I'll say that again. That's kind of a little long parenthetical statement, but you know, the good news is this is not just a try harder salvation. You come, I make you feel guilty. You go out, I'm going to try harder. We know how that works, don't we? On our own strength. This is not a just try harder salvation. This is let God pour his love into your heart by the fullness of the Holy Spirit as a gift of faith, salvation. Just as you receive the gift of salvation by faith, we receive the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit by faith. It's a gift. 
We seek it and ask for it. Just as salvation is a gift, the fullness of God's spirit and God's love that comes with this gift of grace through faith. Now, you may have to get down on your knees many times, as I tell people when I've done weddings and, and read 1 Corinthians 13. This sounds good, but at some point, you're not going to hit the mark, okay? You're going to blow it. <laughs> at that point, we humble ourselves and we seek God and ask him for his forgiveness and to fill us anew and afresh with his spirit, with his love, by his spirit. Well, what's the bottom end? I have told you these things so that my joy and delight may be in you, that your joy may be made full and complete and overflowing. Do you want Christ's joy and delight? Do you want a joy that is full and complete and overflowing? Invite Christ into your life as Savior. Paul called it here in Romans as being justified by faith. But then invite Jesus to be Lord, not just Savior, but Lord of all. Invite him to open yourself to the fullness of the Spirit. The day of Pentecost is the best example of this. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus was not only with the followers of Jesus after that day, but the Holy Spirit was within them. He dwelled within them. And those Pentecost Christians were scattered from Jerusalem to produce another kind of fruit as they began to reproduce other Christians. And the Spirit used them then to preach the gospel. I close with Matthew 28, 18. How do we do this? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Stay vitally united with Jesus and allow his message to live in your heart. Assuming you've already invited him in as Savior and Lord and submitted yourself and surrendered yourself to the fullness of his spirit. Father, again, thank you for your word to us and the I am's of Jesus. Uh, we think way back in Exodus when you first identified yourself to Moses. As Moses went before uh, Egypt and the pharaohs, he said, who shall I say sent me? Who shall I tell the people of Israel sent me? And he said, tell them I am, that I am sent you Yahweh. And here Jesus is using the Greek phrase that means what that Hebrew phrase means, I am. You are God. And you're able to do in us and with us more than we can ever ask or imagine as long as we cooperate with you in our lives. We thank you for that. Thank you for your word to us. May we abide in you and you abide in us. We pray in Christ's name. To him who is able to keep you from being cut off from the vine and to present you before his glorious presence with much fruit and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen and amen.